So we're back in the book of Revelation. Once again, this isn't a send-off message for you, Grace. That would be uh, <laughs> judgment and plagues and all of these different things. So no, this is just as we continue in the book of Revelation, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation 16. 16. So yes, we are making progress. We've had a lot of interruptions this past summer and... Um, not, I am certainly not in a rush to get through a revelation because sometimes I look at these chapters and I think, oh, this would easily be the whole chapter. We should just do an overview over the whole chapter. And then as you just begin to dig, and there's just so much in each chapter that, um, it, you know, I hate to go over anything too quickly or pass over things as, as though they're unimportant. So we're going to be looking at the first 11 verses, 11 verses, uh, about half the chapter in chapter 16. If you'll stand and we will read God's word together in Revelation chapter 16. Beginning in verse 1. And I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the seven bowls of the wrath of God into the earth. And the first angel went and poured out his bowl into the earth, and it became a loathsome and malignant sore upon the men. Look at that description. Who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. So these are the ones that we met previously in Revelation who were not the believers, obviously, who went ahead and willingly took the 666 mark. And the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became blood like that of a dead man. And every living thing in the sea died. And the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. Now, it doesn't say they became like blood. I thought this was important. So a lot of people take revelation and they just symbol, everything's a symbol of something else. Or it didn't really mean that. It means, you know, why not take it literal? If God doesn't say to take it literal, then I would take it literal. I think we would be more safe there. And it says it became blood, right? And I heard the angel of the waters, this is verse 5, saying, Righteous are you who was and who is, O holy one, because you judge these things. For they poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. Verse 7, And I heard the altar say, saying, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. And the fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to it to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues. And they did not repent so as to give him glory. And the fifth angel poured out his bowl upon the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became darkened, and they gnawed their tongues because of pain, and they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. You may be seated. Father in heaven, we just ask as we look into this very disturbing section of scripture, very dramatic, 
we just ask, Lord, that you would give clarity to our minds, that you would help us to grasp it, you would help us to understand it. What's going on here? Lord God, we ask that your Holy Spirit would just reveal your truth to us, that you would be our teacher this morning. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, while working part-time for a growing civil engineering firm in Southern California while I was finishing up graduate studies, one day I was, I was abruptly handed a new work uniform, so to speak. Someone handed me safety goggles, then they gave me a hard hat, and then they gave me a tool belt. And I was thinking, what on earth? I was working in the office. I was doing some drafting. I was doing some maintenance work. What was this for? Did I miss the, the memo for an office costume party? Or what on earth is going on here? Well, come to find out, and within moments, I had been chosen, again, so to speak, for the dismantling team. In reality, that team consisted of me and two crusty, foul-mouthed old handymen. The firm that I was working for in Southern California in the Orange County area was moving to a new, much larger building. But it would first need the new building to be stripped out. Some walls and fixtures removed, car all the carpeting torn up, all of the ceiling tiles removed from the ceiling. Tear it all down, my new bosses yelled. We can't start anything until it's gutted. Now they used much more colorful language than that, which I won't share this morning. Have you been in a situation like that before in your life? Have you had a similar type experience? Have you been involved in some kind of demolition project, whether it was on the work, at the workplace, or it might be something that you're doing at home? Then you likely have learned the principle over the years that sometimes we have to dismantle, we have to discard, even sometimes destroy things before we can build something new, something better. Well, this is also often true in the spiritual realm as well, where myths and misconceptions, popular unbiblical ideas, feel-good theology, may need a good swing of the sledgehammer. And particularly as we wade into this interesting text in Revelation chapter 16. Why here? Why in Revelation chapter 16? We could certainly go back and do 15 and 14 also and apply the same principle. But here particularly, as we've just read together, we see a, a picture of our God that is unfortunately difficult for many to swallow. A figure that won't comfortably fit into a manageable big guy upstairs package. Or a good pal, heavenly genie, pushover grandpa image. This is a God, literally, who has had enough. He's done. And he responds to man, those left on earth who have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ, accordingly. He responds through amazing judgments, like the plagues, that, the seven plagues that we have listed here. 
He responds in what scripture defines over and over again, an old word that makes many cringe, as we talked about last Sunday, through his wrath, through his anger. So before we can really grasp the finality of these last seven chapters of the book of Revelation, beginning here in chapter 16, God's ending book, if you will, we need to clarify his truth, I believe, by maybe doing some personal dismantling. So I'm going to ask you this morning as we begin and we kind of do an overview over these first 11 verses to put on your spiritual safety goggles and get ready to take at least four big swings of the sledgehammer. Are you ready to do that? The first two I would like to call somewhat preliminary in better understanding the text, and then subsequent chapters in the book of Revelation. The second two of the four swings, swing three and four, will be more directly from the text in verses one through 11. So let's take swing number one. What are we looking at? We must always be careful of making God something he is not. We must always, Christians, be careful in making God something he is not. Isn't this really the gist if we go all the way back to the Old Testament and we're making all these connections with Moses in the last chapter and the book of Exodus and the voyage of the Israelites through the desert? Doesn't this really then take us back to the first two commandments in Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 6? God needs to be who God said he is, right? Isaiah chapter 40 verse 18 says, To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare him to? That's a rhetorical question. There is no one like our God. We sing that, right? I believe we sang it last Sunday. In the same book, 40, chapter, or, uh, 45, verse 18, he says, I am the Lord, and there is no one else. God is telling us throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, throughout this amazing final book of Revelation, that this word, only the word of God, is his self-revelation. We don't add to it. We don't alter it with our own ideas. We don't create our own God because, after all, this is the year 2022. We need a makeover of God. We need to make him more, what, palatable for the masses. Does God give us that right to do that? God is always the same. And the Bible that you ha hopefully have in front of you is God's own self-revelation telling us what he wants us to know about him. How do you feel when you are characterized wrongly? When somebody says something about you and it's a, it's a personality issue and they say so-and-so, they're talking about you and you overhear the conversation or it gets back to you from a friend or family member and they say, you are so lazy and you're the most hardworking person there is. Or some other just tear at your character and you feel like totally unmisrepresented, where do they get that idea? And it becomes a rumor, it becomes slander, it becomes gossip. How do you feel about that? 
I have a feeling you react pretty strongly. I doubt there's anybody in this room who would just say, I don't care. I just don't care. God cares. He's told us who he is. And he wants to set the record straight. So we need to be careful, first of all, that, that we're not making God ever somebody that he is not. In order to understand the, the things that are going on in the book of Revelation, particularly here in chapter 16. Number two, let's take swing number two with a spiritual sledgehammer. We must always be careful of, this could piggyback on the first one, of humanizing his wrath. Of humanizing his wrath. Back in the Old Testament in the book of Psalms, Psalm 50, verse 21, God says this. You thought that I was just like you. And so often this is how false ideas can cloud our understanding. Because God's anger can sometimes seem cruel or, or embarrassing or hard to reconcile. Because whenever we lose our cool, it is so often a very negative thing. It's a loss of control, loss of self-control, an outburst that normally hurts someone and necessitates an apology. So how can a holy God then blow his top? What is already implied in that very question? How can a holy God blow his top? That somehow God is doing something wrong. But God's wrath can never be wrong because unlike us, in his holiness, he is incapable of being ever in error or mistaken. With God, there is never an overreaction. With God, there is never a tantrum. With God, there is never a wounded pride fury. With us on all three of those counts, yes. With God, never. We read in verse 5 in chapter 16, the proclamation, O Holy One, the angelic beings say, O Holy One. We talked about last Sunday and sang the song, Holy, 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 from the book of Isaiah. What does that mean? For God to be holy, God is separated. God is uncommon. God is uniquely who God is. He is incapable of ever doing anything wrong. Never has a wrong motive. Never has a wrong action. Can't. Because he's holy. He's perfect. So we need to be careful that we don't humanize his wrath. When we think of the wrath of God, when we think of the anger of God, that we don't think of an outburst similar to maybe a weakness that we have or a weakness that we've seen in human character. Somebody has an anger problem. They need to go to anger management. God doesn't have an anger problem. His wrath is based on righteousness. His wrath is based on judgment. And as those two things come together here at the end of the world of the earth as we know it, two other important things come up. And so we're going to take swing number three from the text here and we're going to ask the question, how then is this wrath, this anger, this judgment of God then justified? 
Why is it time's up? <clears throat> so we're getting to the, to the end of the world here. Why is it time's up? So here's two more significant truths. Swing number three. Man gets what man deserves. Sounds simple, right? Man gets what man deserves. If you look at verses 1 through 7 again, and we look at the different incredible plagues that are spilled out on mankind. Remember, these things are, are they're, they're like in subsequent order. So the, the boils or whatever they are, the loathsome and mag, mag, malignant sores on people don't go away. They're just compounded on by the next judgment. So we have the sea that turns to blood, and it's like that of a dead man. Every living thing in the sea dies, and then all the springs and the rivers are like blood. So you've got all kinds of things affecting men. So everybody left that took the mark of the beast, those that said, yes, will give in to the satanic system, to the antichrist system. Remember what? You had to have the mark of the beast to buy or sell. So all of those Christians that refused the mark of the beast, they were kicked out of society. They probably lost their jobs, their families. A lot of them were martyred, we can gather from the book of Revelation. So what you have left primarily are those people who accepted the mark, who accepted the Antichrist program. They're the ones now, they're covered with sores. They're the ones now whose waters turn to blood. So they can't get fish from the ocean. There's no maritime industry anymore. And in Roman society, so John writing this, reading this, looking at the word of God, the Roman society was all maritime. Most of their food came from the sea. Most of their business, their, their economics were based upon the sea. It turns to blood. What about their water supply? So we're not just talking about the sea. We're talking now. This takes us back to very similar to the Egyptian plagues with Moses, doesn't it? Except now we're not talking about the Nile. Moses' plagues were limited to a country and a time. The people of Egypt and that particular time. This is the whole known world. This is every single river, all of the sea. So it's different here. It's different. And what we see here are three particular cycles. So these judgments are, are uh, follow other judgments. You may remember if you've been here in our study of Revelation way back, we began with the sealed judgment or God begins with the sealed judgments back in chapter 6 verse 1 through 8, 5. Then we have the trumpet judgments beginning in the next verse 8, 6 through eleven nineteen, And these judgments are growing in scope and severity. You may remember back in chapter 6 that the some of the things that went on are classified as happening over a fourth of the earth. Revelation chapter 8, that changes to a third of the earth, the sea, the waters, the sun, the stars. Here we have a completely different picture. This is the third cycle of judgments. These are the plague judgments, the bold judgments. These we are meeting the area of completion affecting all mankind. There is no more opportunity here to repent. 
If you just stop at the end of verse 4 for a moment and kind of take a breath and think, what would this have been like if you were John? Remember, he's seeing these things. He's just not reading about them. He's seeing them in first century technicolor. Imagine the assault on your senses in the, the fullness of the scope, the severity of the scope. All mankind are being affected by this. And then what happens? Interestingly, we, get, we hear a voice in verse 5. John hears a voice. And what does that voice say? Heard the angel of the waters. We don't know what that is. Angels were, seemed like they were designated different areas because we get the angels of the four corners of the earth. We get ones that do different things. So these are God's servants, and, and they, it seems like they have authority vested in them by God to take care of different things on the earth, serving God in different ways. But this angel of the water says, righteous are you. Righteous are you. Just breaks out and prays. It reminds us that, that God is the, the one who is and the one who is always going to be. He's the Holy One. Why? Because he, judge, he judges these things. For they poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. They deserve it. Think about that for a moment. They deserve it. If you go back to Revelation chapter 7, and remember this, or chapter 6, I'm sorry, verses 9 through 11, we are told this. Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. And when he broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each one of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren also were to be killed, even as they had been, should be completed also. We see this cycle now coming to its completion here. How long, O oh Lord, before our blood will be avenged? How long before your justice will be practically served on the earth? How long before your wrath will bring all of this to a close? And that's exactly what the angel is referring to in verses 5 and 6 and 7. For they poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you've given them blood to drink. And then makes this proclamation statement, they deserve it. Now look at verse 7. What happens? And I heard the altar saying, the altar saying, the altar's talking. The altar is echoing their support of what this angel had just said. Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. Now, when that angel makes that proclamation, they deserve it. Is there any debate or arguing or shaking heads or anything going on in the heavenlies? Are there angels saying, whoa, oh, wait a minute, come on. Give them another chance. What do you mean they deserve it? Where's grace here? 
Come on, God. That's not fair. Is there any kind of argument or debate going on in heaven? No, the angel says they deserve it. And then the, the altar echoes likely those martyrs who are under the altar who have been waiting there while God said, take a rest in a little while. My justice will be served. They are, are echoing out, yes, God, your judgments are just. The time has come. Yes, and they're praising the Lord. These, these martyrs, these saints are happy because God's program is coming to a conclusion and man who has rejected God all along gets what he deserves. God's justice here. Do we get this? Sometimes I think we can get so used to grace that unfortunately we begin to twist it. We begin to get so used to it that it becomes almost, well, let's just say what it is, deserved. As Christians, we almost create this, this feel-good theology, this inclusion theology, theology where we have made grace be something that we deserve. You have to give it to me, God, because you're gracious. What's wrong with that? We forget. We forget that we are all deserving. We forget that we all had a certificate of debt over our heads that none of us could take care of on our own and it was nailed to the cross, Colossians chapter 2. We forget that. We forget the marvelous gift of God's grace. Now, think about this for a moment. Let's say that you're going to demo your kitchen. Hopefully, you're not going to take a sledgehammer to it, but you're going to be, be dismantling everything in your kitchen. You're going to take out tiles. You're going to remove the cabinets. You're, you're going to take out all the lighting fixtures. And all that stuff is sitting out on your driveway. All to go to the dump. But a friend happens to call you. Says, what are you doing, man? You say, I'm, de I'm demoing my kitchen. I've got all this stuff out on the driveway. He says, really? What are you doing with all that stuff? Well, it's headed to the dump, but if you can come over here in the next 24 hours, you can have any of it you want. Now, I want you to think about that. Stuff sitting on your driveway is still stamped dump. That's where it's supposed to go. That's where it's heading, right? The only reason it won't end up in the dump is if the friend intervenes. That's our God. Our God intervened. We were still stamped with dump. An eternal dump. It's called Gehenna. A place that burns forever and ever. Where the fire never goes out. Where there is gnashing of teeth. We were all stamped that. None of us can say, I deserve heaven. I deserve eternity. But I think we forget this. It's only by his grace. But there's a day when that grace is over. Yes, there is a day when the grace is over. And that's God's right to pull the plug on his grace anytime he wants. Because he's holy, right? We can't plead with him and say, go, God, that's not fair. 
Come on. They deserve it. The angel said it. Those under the altar agreed. Had no argument from God. He didn't come out from the sanctuary and say, whoa, whoa, hold on here. What are you guys, judge and jury? They were all in accord. They deserve it. Let's look at the last swing from the text here. Man gets what he decides. Man gets what he decides. Now, I know theologically we don't technically just choose Jesus Christ. But there is definitely no ambiguity in our rejection of Jesus Christ. Look at the ugly picture and their consistent reaction. In verses 8 and 9, all of this stuff goes on. The fourth angel pulls out, pours out the bowl, and now men are getting scorched. So they've already, they can't drink. They've already lost industry. They've already covered with sores. Now they're scorched. They're burning up. They're sunburned like a sunburn they've never experienced before. And what happens? Verse 9. What do they do? They blaspheme God. Can you believe that? They blaspheme God and they did not repent as to give him glory. Okay? Look at verses 10 and 11. Same thing. Angel pours out the next bowl. Everything's dark. This throne of the beast that they have followed with loyalty, his kingdom, his throne, it all becomes dark. And now they're gnawing their tongues because of pain. Their pain is just increasing. Remember, they're sunburned. They got their sores, all this stuff. And what happens? They did not repent of their deeds. Now go a little further to the end of the chapter, verse 21, and huge hailstones. You get kind of a sneak preview here. Huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each. You ever heard of such a thing? Came down from heaven upon men, and men said, Okay, Lord, we're yours. You'd think it would be that way, wouldn't you? What's their reaction? Men blaspheme God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. Are you seeing something consistent here? They knew where or from whom these judgments were coming. So let's clear up something here. These were not atheists. Did you catch that? Oh, I have so much talk about now people that don't believe in anything, people that are atheists, all this, you know, no God, no that. You know, in the last days, that's all going to come to a head. All of this talk and stuff that you're hearing, the increased paganism in our world today and, and anti-Christian attitude, that's all going to come to a head in this final year of the tribulation. But these people acknowledge there's a God. They know exactly where all this stuff is coming from. So what are they doing? They're rejecting. They're rejecting and they're rebelling. But they aren't atheists. They've had the word preached to them. They've had warnings. They've had not one, not two, but three unprecedented cycles of human suffering. And they choose defiance. They choose defiance. They choose to say I don't want anything to do with you. And they blaspheme and they continue in their rebellion. I had a guy many, many years ago, I had a, a workplace Bible study. 
I thought I was going to have, you know, maybe a group of five or six, and I got one guy. First time I did it, I got one guy. I was working in a warehouse. He was kind of a crusty old guy. He was about, he was probably 30 years older than I was. And at the time, covered with tattoos when tattoos were not a thing. And just kind of a foul-mouthed guy, partier guy, you know, and everything. And I said, hey, I'm going to have this work with this lunchtime Bible study thing. It's just going to be really casual, you know, and... and uh, he said, yeah, I'll do it. I didn't have a Bible, so I gave him a Bible. He came out. We sat out in front of the, the big warehouse out on the grass, and, you know, we were talking about things, and, and uh, I'd already shared the gospel with him, you know, no real response, but he goes, so what are we going to look at today? And for some reason, I opened up some portions. It, it may or may not have been. I don't recall exactly where the scriptures were, but it could have been Revelation chapter 21 and 22, because we were talking about heaven. And I thought, yeah, let this guy know a little bit about heaven. You know, this earth is, is pretty tough. This world is pretty tough, but it's because of the curse on it. But there's a greater place to come for those who know Jesus Christ. And maybe that'll open up some kind of a discussion. So I started reading the verses, and all of a sudden the guy stood up. He stood up and goes, eh, not for me. Here's your Bible. Threw it back at me, and he walked away. I thought, that's it? What do you mean? Not for you. I'm talking about heaven here. Well, it occurred to me later on, and as I had another brief discussion with him, because he really didn't want to talk about anything again, it was like, you know, I am partying here. I am living very independent of God. I like this crazy, foul lifestyle that I live. Why on earth would I want to make a decision to spend the rest of my eternity in the presence of a holy God singing praises to him. And that made sense to me. Yeah, why would he? Why would he? It makes sense when we think of the continued rebellion. They don't love God. They don't want anything to do with God. And as their hearts get more and more hardened to giving their lives over to the Lord Jesus Christ, to, to submitting themselves to the authority of a holy God, to submitting themselves to the word of God. God will give them over to the hardness of their hearts. He did it with Pharaoh, didn't he? There's the Moses connection again. Read Romans chapter 1 if you need further proof. Once men's hearts get so hard, are we bothered by the fact that God will just give them over to their sin? Are we bothered by that? Well, isn't he God? Doesn't he know the hearts and minds and the intentions of our thoughts and our motives? He knows where that heart is going, and he knows when it's completely crusted over, and they say to him, no, I don't want anything to do with you. That's what's happening here. Man gets then what he decides. God is just. And he will give them over to what they already want. Well, as appalling and difficult as these plague scenes already are, and we've just looked at five of them, in verses 1 through 11, were it not for God's intervention of his grace and his spirit, we might well be shaking at our own fists in rebellion at God. Isn't that true? Think about this. 
God used his grace. Everybody that knows Jesus Christ in this room, think about this for a moment. God used his wonderful, marvelous, unmerited grace that you had nothing to do with. God used his Holy Spirit as the great comforter, the one to come alongside of, the one that has an awesome ministry of also conviction of sin. God used his, his holy and perfect word that maybe for many of us that word was sitting around at some, somewhere in our lives or was readily available to us. After all, we live in the United States of America. If you ever been in a hotel room, it was there. He used all those things. He used the prayers of friends, maybe your parents, maybe other relatives, maybe people you don't even know were praying for you. He used various gospel presentations, maybe by somebody that was stammering and nervous, but they felt compelled to share the gospel with you at some point, and maybe you didn't respond right then, but you heard the gospel somewhere else, or you saw it in a movie, or you read it in a book, or, or you, you just saw it, you saw John 3.16 at a ball game. God used all those things. He used churches. He used other ministries. He used Awana. He used missionary presentations. All of those different things. To what end? To demolish, to dismantle, to demo your pride. That's grace. And I say when we look at these plagues and we shudder and we see what the end of the world is going to be like, men make these choices and men deserve what they get, the judgment of God. You and I who know Jesus Christ on this side of the rapture should say amen. Amen. Because that could have been me. That could have been me with boils on my skin, still shaking my fist at God and saying, no, sir, don't want anything of it. Praise God for his grace. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do want to say thank you right now for your amazing grace that intervened in our lives to draw us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And all we had to do was say yes. We thank you for saving us. We thank you for the sureness of our spiritual inheritance in Jesus. And Lord God, may that even motivate us even more to pray for our friends and family and coworkers and students and neighbors who don't know you. As the time gets shorter, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.